Mr. Mark Selby, how are you, sir? I'm very good, Mr. Matthew Gordon. Okay, so you are speaking from a hotel room somewhere in DC, the center of the universe, some would think and say. Uh, what are you doing there? Yeah, so this is the last leg of a Indonesia, Japan, uh, and here in Washington, DC at the uh, Benchmark Conference, uh, which is their big annual uh, Gigafactories um, conference and sort of their, their big uh, one. So I saw Joe Manchin speak yesterday, um, but uh, last night was, was, was uh, you know, I think really underscoring just how important this is, you know, EV supply chains are, are politically. Uh, there was a, a handful of companies that were invited to the Treasury, uh, uh, Department of Treasury uh, with four senior administration officials who basically, you know, we had a conversation around, you know, what, what could the administration do uh, to help, you know, you know, get our projects moving along, and and you know, help in general, help the mining industry, you know, deliver more raw materials that they need. You know, I was very proud of the fact that we were the only Canadian project that was there. So, you know, I think uh, it's good to be on the right radar screens for sure. What's prompted this? Why why now? And what is the extent of what they were? I, I imagine you can't tell me what they were offering or talking about, or maybe they weren't. But what's the sort of nature of that conversation in terms of how does? The U.S. government think it can help industry. Yeah. So, so again, you know, the the Inflation Reduction Act had a you know whole series of things in terms of providing incentives, you know, sort of across the supply chain to help move those parts of the supply chain into the United States. You know, in addition to the, the companies, there was a, a senior banker from one of the big banks and a senior market research firm from one of the big uh, global market research firms, and uh, you know, it was it was very much around you know we. We've put in, you know, a, a series of measures. You know, we know there's more that we can do to help. You know that, you know, we we know that this is going to be a a big transformation, and there's a you know a huge amount of work that we need to do to go from the point where you know we're reliant, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent on on the China being in supplying, you know, that volume of material for a bunch of the different materials to a point where, you know, we can really have a whole sort of domestic supply chain as much as possible, you know, in, in the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years and eventually get to a point where we're, you know, far less dependent on a country that, you know, is, is, is hostile. So, you know, it, it is, it was, it was, it was, in you know, again, it's, it's at that level in, in, in the U.S. government in terms of, you know, how important an issue um, you know, sort of taking China out of the supply chain is nationalization light. No, no, I'm joking. That scares people. Those those sort of sentences. But yeah, yeah, no, no, there's none of that. You... There was no talk about that, thankfully. So yeah, yeah. No, no, I know, no, no. But it, but it, but what, I guess what I'm um, trying to get a grip on because we talked a few weeks ago about you know the potential for some of these projects to be you know either entirely debt funded or you know pro provincial or state funded. Um, to a level where they can get into production um, yeah. and maybe, maybe even eradicate the need for equity, you know, at some point yeah. down the line. I'm just, that's why I'm sort of intrigued by the, the nature of these conversations. Obviously, the South American story, you know, is about taking over assets, taking over the company, and, you know, that's not very good for publicly held companies. Um, but with this kind of light touch um, from governments, and let's focus on the US here, they're concerned about critical minerals pathways, um, you know, supply to meet, you know, na national demand. Um, given that how small the mining sector is, given how small in, in relative terms, some of the uh, funding required to get these projects into um, production to you know, deliver against those needs. Do you see governments are more and more stepping up to the plate uh, as, as, you, as you recently announced with the Canadian government's um, you know, tax credits? 
Can you see that in the U.S.? Oh, I think, no, the, I mean, the U.S. is there. And then the other part is because of the way the legislation is written and the Inflation Reduction Act in terms of, you know, sort of friendly countries qualifying for, uh, you know, participating in those subsidies. You know, again, I think the realization is, yeah, there's there's not going to be 100 mines open up in the United States in the next three years. You know, they, they have to fix the permitting process to make that happen. But you know, what, what they are doing is basically creating a much broader alliance. So I think what you'll see over the next you know, six months to a year is basically, you know, the sort of friendly countries with the U.S. will all sort of sort of become part of this ecosystem around, you know, you know, how we, you know, with a shared interest of, of not having China in, in, in their supply chains. Um, so, yeah, no, it uh, it. Uh, you know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see how that all evolves going forward. So, well, that, that's specifically talking about the IRA, there, obviously. But I guess what I'm getting at is, does it feel like there's more initiatives coming down the line? Will this get easier for mining companies um, to access capital? Yeah, no, no, one hundred percent. Like they, 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 you know, they're there to basically find ways to 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 whatever it takes. To, to to you know get as much of the supply chain built in in, in friendly hands so yeah and, and yeah so you know if there's a market disconnect that continues to sort of impede that then you know again I think they'll 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 throw more money at it like you know, they are really you know committed to whatever they need to do to get the incentives for the market to come and help fix this problem for them. Right. And because and, uh, we, we've been involved with, you know, some of the conversations with the government um, from some of the uranium companies, you know, about four, four years ago, conversations started, but it wasn't quite there yet. And most, most companies CEO said, well, look, it would be nice, but we don't need it. We need to be masters of our own destiny. Government moves at such a slow speed. Given the high profile nature of Joe Biden's policies around green energy not just green energy but 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 you know green production for in, industrial the industrial complex uh electric vehicles is a massive part of that we're seeing a huge incentive from u.s government to help you know automotive manufacturers switch over and commit to that and they've done that um again do you do you see the kind of um speed and impetus of that benefiting companies mining companies I'm talking about today, like like now, and what sort, sorts of uh, incentives could be there. And I appreciate what you said so far, but I'm just trying again, trying to work out where the money's coming from, how it gets justified, yeah, and how does it get allocated? Yeah, I think. I mean, uh, you know, I think what what the what the Canadian government rolled out is 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 again. I think you'll see more countries quote in the alliance, put those kind of programs together where. You know, you know, the one program is not giving us all of our equity, but they are delivering a pretty substantial chunk of cash, you know, into the overall, uh, you know, over in the overall financing mix. And uh, again, I think if for some reason, you know, that that that's still big chunks of cash don't help get things get over the line, I think they'll just put another layer of incentives on top of it. You know, to be able to, to, you know, they'll keep doing it until they see the kind of uh, shift that they want to have have seen. So I think the, the key the key thing to take away is, you know, that there there's they're going to be driving for more and not less in terms of of, of of getting this happen. And and as I said, there's this you know five to seven year window here, and you know initially it's going to continue beyond that. But this first five, you know, to be some of those first projects that are able to take full advantage of these programs, I think is going to be a you know, it'd be one of those once in a generation ways to uh, create value. Well, well I, th I think here, here's the next thing, um, 
I guess, problem that they're trying to solve, which is if they, if they don't step in and companies, mining companies don't get into production, it's going to drive metal prices through the roof. Now, some of those problems could be designed out of cars, or batteries, or, or, or other, other use cases, but ain't going to be quick and easy. And I think metal prices then has a massive impact on, you know, quite a bit of the supply chain as a result, which has a very negative effect on, on the economy. So I guess in some way that they've been incentivized to solve this problem at source rather than let it ripple through with the inevitable markups all the way through that supply chain. Um, is that... Oh, I mean, it's that, but, but again, if, if they don't, then, you know, uh, I think what happened with Russia and oil was, you know, was, was the warning sign that, okay, you know, if, if there are, uh, countries that are not particularly friendly to our way of life and, and, you know, that, you know, by not, by, by leaving us 80, 90% dependent on them supplying a raw material, you know, there's always a risk that they'll just turn it off, right, and use it as a as a as a as a leverage point. And you know, it's just just not a good way to run an economy if you're you know dependent on your enemy, you know, or perceived enemy. Okay, well, look, um, enough of that because what I actually want to talk about today is you've also you've also been on the road in Indonesia. Now, a lot of um, inbounds talking about. Well, you know, Nichols is kind of setting duck for the Indonesians. They're going to ramp up uh, capacity. They're going to ramp up output, in which case, you know, the West, you know, good luck in trying to compete with that. What, what did you see over there? Yeah, so it was good to – so it was, a, it was a conference organized by Shanghai Metal Markets. There were 370 people at the conference, uh, so one of the more well-attended ones that I've been to uh, in quite a while. And I would say 250 to 300 of the people there were, were Chinese or Indonesian. And then, you know, there was another other hundred from, from around the world. So, um, yeah, no, I think there is no doubt there is a massive amount of capacity coming. So, you know, that one, you know, government official talked about, you know, there's approximately 4 million tons of, of project capacity that's in the pipeline, um, you know, through the end of this, this decade. And so, um, you know, that's 4 million out of what, again, I think by 2030, it'll be a, you know, five to five and a half million ton nickel market, which is fine. Like we would, again, we've, I've been saying all along, we need all of it because people are underestimating how much demand growth is coming. So, you know, that is, that, that capacity is coming. There really is a real focus on creating a battery, battery ecosystem within Indonesia. So there's much less talk, and this is good for people who might be feeding the stainless steel chain in, in the United States and Europe. Uh, it's, it is, you know, all of the projects, you know, the HPAL projects are going to be, you know, much more front and center, and they'll be producing MHP, which will go in, in into the battery chain. You know, there's no talk about any more stainless capacity coming on um, in, in Indonesia. So I thought that was, that was pretty interesting structurally. Um, you know, the key thing, though, is, you know, uh, again, coming to supply concentration, you know, by the end of this decade, you're looking at Indonesia being 75 or 80% of the global market in terms of production. So, you know, one of the interesting takeaways was, you know, there's been some talk about floating the export tax on NPI to, to force even more downstream processing in. Um, but what there, there, there was a, a lot of discussion in the government talking about is creating an Indonesian nickel price index. And so, you know, that would be the basis for which, Indonesian nickel materials of various forms were going to be going to be priced off of. So that, you know, to my mind is also a way that if they wanted to basically just, you know, effectively manage the price higher, you know, 
to make sure that Indonesia is capturing the most value and, and the Chinese capturing less. I think once we get through this next wave of capacity additions and, and the Chinese have invested, you know, another 30 or 40 billion dollars in the country, you know, I think you'll see it where they, again, for utilizing the resource, which is limited, right? It, it doesn't go forever, you know, that they make sure as a developing country that they're getting the most value for it. So what that means is for the rest of the world that there's a risk, you know, that they're going to try and move prices higher, um, you know, in, in as, as, as part of all that. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And that, that should sort of get a little the, me, me, more clarity on that. It got, I got a sense that in the next six to 12 months, we'll see something on that for sure. Right. So lots more capacity coming down the line, potentially China f- financing a, a, a chunk of that. Indonesians wanting to take, take control to create their own, um, I, I guess, OPEC. For, yeah. well, you've got a name for it, haven't you? ONEC. Yep. Onek, Onek, um, which is which 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 will be really really interesting to see if, if they corner that, but also interesting to see how the West you know, reacts to that because I guess there's some legacy issues around environmental and, and perception of of you know just how green that process is, and the automotive manufacturers as part of their their marketing and their branding are maybe concerned about that. What does that do, or what's the opportunity there for kind of Western producers to kind of slot in there oh for sure i mean and again that does part of you know our thesis has always been is you know again even if indonesia you know is is becomes the dominant supplier you know western companies will want some amount of local supply so you know the discussion we just had in the first six minutes of this call you know they don't want it to be in a country or controlled by companies that um, you know, uh, have could be could could particularly could potentially threaten the economy of 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 of, of the United States and, and other Western countries. So big, big focus by a lot of the automotive supply chain to have domestic domestic supply or as much domestic supply as possible. You know, is not going to go away anytime soon. However, you know, there is a market reality. You know, we're not. You know, production's been shrinking in the West. So, you know, I think there is going to be some interim measures and some small amount of U.S. involvement um, in Indonesia to try and and you know get the material they need in the meantime before Western projects uh, can come up. But no, that I mean, the challenge is they're there. You know, it was it was very clear. Um, I'm going to do a little extra work, but it seemed that there was a lot of open property. So again, with a with a laterite mine, you're basically you're just stripping the first X meters of of the soil off the top of of the underlying rock, and so um, it looked like there was large open areas um, that had not been revegetated. So. Typically, in a, in a well-run operation, you mine what you want. Then, very shortly after, you go go back and revegetate it, which keeps the soil, rest of the soil, uh, in place and, and eliminates any runoff and so forth that help, it could de- degrade the areas around it. Um, you know, from what we could see from the highway, from the mines that we went in, you know, I was surprised just how how how. Um, that how much had not been revegetated yet, and again, that just creates runoff that goes into streams that goes out um, into the ocean. Um, you know, the other big challenge, the other I- issue that I think is going to be a challenging for Western companies to get involved there is, you know, every plant had what's called the BREMOB. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly in, in Indonesian, but these are the badass Indonesian special forces. You know, th- these th- these are not your sort of security police. These are, you know, anti-riot, anti-terrorist, um, top, you know, top elite forces within the Indonesian government, within the Indonesian uh, armed forces. And and they're there because, you know, there was a big riot a few months ago at one of the plants. Um, and so, you know, uh, we've been told now they've got these these guys at each of these facilities. So that's not, uh, <laughs> I would say, leading labor print principles in terms of how you manage your workforce. 
So um, guys with very, very big guns. Yeah, and I think that, that, that sort of thing, and obviously run off, run off into the oceans is, is, is sort of making negative headlines across the board and, and broad brushstrokes are being applied. Um, but I guess that'll become become clearer, and companies will do better at kind of communicating, you know, where, where they stand on, on on those sorts of processes. And just just talk to me though, if all of this capacity is being created, yeah. right, four million tons, yeah, you know, through through twenty thirty, um, they're going to need to feed that. You, you're going to need to feed that those plants. So there's no point in having capacity if 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 they're not you know optimized. Um, but what's grade doing over there at the moment? Yeah, that's the single biggest risk to the story. And then again, for the opportunity for the rest of us in the in the in the rest of the world is, in terms of the volume of material, what was interesting. The guy who is the head of the Geological Bureau in his presentation, you know that that four million tons of capacity will need five hundred million tons of ore per year, and he's not sure that you know the resource base in Indonesia can support that level uh, of operation. Um, you know, that was something I was keeping an eye on it and, and focus as we went to the different operations. You know, what was was very clear is the ones on Sulawesi, in the island of Sulawesi. Um, you know, they were designed initially with 1.8% feed, and that would generate for one size furnace about 8,000 tons a year. You know, they're now, some of those operations are at 7,000 tons or even, even a little bit less because the grade that they was going through, you know, a couple of plants was at 1.65 or 1.6. One of the operations said they're already using 1.5%. So, you know, again, the Chinese have, you know, they've basically optimized this process to the extent, you, you know, you're not going to try and get more throughput through these furnaces, you know, that that's designed. So any loss in grade comes right through with the loss in output. So you might build 4 million tons of capacity based on a 1.8% grade, you know, just a simple example. But if you get a 1.6, that, you know, there's four or 500,000 tons less production that's going to come out of it. So, um, you know, that's some. You know, I, I think in some of our discussions, I've talked to Nick, Nickel Industries owns some mines in Indonesia and they publish the ore grade. And, and you've seen from 2% grade when they went public in 2019, you know, their mines are already down to 1.65, 1.7%. So, you know, that's something to definitely keep an eye on. Now, the HPALs don't use the saprolite ore. The saprolite ore is for nickel pig iron. You know, there's lots of limonite around. Um, so, you know, they won't have any problems for the first million tons or so, or probably first million and a half tons of HPAL production because they'll be utilizing material that's, you know, being already mined. But, you know, it'll be beyond that, then that next million tons or, or, or so, um, you know, you know we'll, we'll have to see what happens with those grades as well as, as we move forward. So I say, you know, that's a key risk and a massive opportunity for those in the West, you know, who, who will have nickel resources coming to market later this decade. It's been interesting. It's obviously with this new build out, um, you know, com coming through at high speed, it's, 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 I know there's lots of Indonesia, lots of islands and lo lots of locations, but I wonder how much monitoring will be done. Surely automotive companies, I'm not talking stainless, I'm talking just automotive companies will demand that le level of, I guess, oversight or certification to, you know, authenticate with whoever they deal with, Indonesia feels like that's kind of behind a closed door in, in, in a way. I know you guys were on site visit there, but you know how open are they? Well, they've they've been pretty good. You know, there are, are I think you know you know we do get to see you know uh, that production data, but um, you know part of me can't help you know the you know that where there's talk of large nickel surpluses, and yet we don't see a lot of inventory sort of laying around. It doesn't feel like we're in a massive surplus. 
situation. And, and again, yes, you know, stuff can't, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not LME deliverable and, 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 but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, for one thing, you know, several sources said that DeLong, who's the second biggest, you know, behind Qingshan in, in, in Sulawesi, um, that they're in real financial difficulty, you know, that they, they, they've stopped producing stainless steel, um, and they're really struggling to, uh, to, to, to remain profitable. So if, you know, if there are companies like that, you know, they wouldn't be in, in non-transparent economies. It's not un, un, unforeseen that they may not be counting their production exactly, you know, and, and maybe overstating it to try and make their numbers look better than they actually are. So again, time will tell, we'll see what happens as the, the course of the year goes, but, uh, um, it'll be it'll be really interesting to sort of see to see how this ramp up continues. Well, yeah, and I imagine the Japanese and Koreans keeping a very very close eye on, on that um, indeed. Um, well, let's just talk a little bit about the, the market, the macro, and, and uh, get a recap of of the numbers. Where do you, where do you see this going? Yeah, so uh, again, we've we've settled in. I thought you know with, with the debt deal, we you know again and and the negative things on global slowdown, you know we might see a test of twenty thousand dollars a ton. Or nine dollars a pound, but no, we've basically been you know hanging in there either side of twenty one thousand uh, dollars. Again, on the on the inventory and quote surplus that's out there, um, you know we've seen LME inventories continue to creep lower, you know down to thirty just thirty seven thousand tons. Now China got a whack of Russian material this week, um, so you know we'll see how that flows through the the, the the Chinese market whether that takes some of the the premium steam out of there. But um, it uh, uh, I, again, you know I. I I still think if we get some negative news that we could see a test of below 20, but so far hanging in very nicely at that $21,000 level. Um, as we've talked about the last few weeks, you know, as I said, four or five months ago, we're going to see lithium prices, you know, basically cause this massive destocking in the battery supply chain. And then we're going to see this face ripping uh, restocking happen in on the lithium side. And again, lithium prices were up more than 13% week over week. Um, and in, in conversations in Indonesia with people said, yeah, no, there's the whole battery supply chain is is really starting uh, to restock. And again, sort of this great convergence happening now um, as enough material is able to be used um, by the battery supply chain, um, you know, and, and not be forced to be pumped out to the market as nickel pig iron. So again, you know, sulfate prices, uh, you know, have moved up when LME prices came down. And so that the, you know, the, the discount now is, is less than half of where it was just six weeks ago. So, you know, this, this convergence trend is continuing to come. And again, you know, the stainless market, uh, you know, China overall economy is not great right now, but, but even with that, we saw NPI discounts again, squeeze in. So, you know, we are headed down the right path. It's going to take another six to 12 months to unfold, but, you know, um, we know we're on track for that, that great convergence, uh, you know, happening okay so you so what, what's happening out there in the in the, in the battery because obviously we're covering the, the whole the whole sector but in terms of the i guess the, the sex and the sizzle bit of it um in terms of battery restocking what, what are we saying as lithium prices were collapsing you know basically chinese uh you know chinese supply chains are very very good at, at running inventories down to, to a really low level um and you know again until they saw a bottom coming in lithium prices they're basically only ordering the absolute minimum that they needed to order as soon as we saw that bottom get put in you see the you know a whole flood of 
orders come into the system and, and start, you know, and so we've seen that, you know, basically lithium prices come right back up. And, and again, we should see improving demand conditions for nickel, cobalt, graphite, you know, the, the rest of the battery materials that are used alongside the, that lithium. Okay. Interesting times. Um, we, we keep, keep monitoring and keep sort of checking in on the price. Um, you sense, you sense general senses, what, for, for this year, or what what are the things that you're going to be looking at this year to kind of give you confidence that the uptick is on its way? Yeah. So so again, the the trend in lithium prices is good. Um, we'll need to see stainless prices move higher. Um, and, and again, I think we'll see stainless and uh, the battery raw material prices will continue to move higher. Uh, you know, when you have a really high underlying demand growth rate and you have a destocking. You know, for that restocking to catch up to something that's growing quickly, it, it can, can be a really sort of intense, uh, you know, restocking phase. And I think, you know, the, the same trends that we've, I've been seeing for the last few weeks, basically, if those that continues on, you know, I think that does set the stage. As I said, at the beginning of the year, you know, we're going to go through a big patch of softness. But by the end of the year, the growth in the battery market should, should assert itself across the, you know, it's going to be intense enough to really have an impact on the broader nickel market per se. So.